Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Um, how many like road trips? You know, good, good. I knew this was going to be a, a lively road trip crowd. Uh, I, when I say road trip, it's amazing. Like, it, it does evoke different emotions and stories depending on the person. Um, I'm an 80s kid. We are kind of built different in the 80s. Right? Our parents, if you're, if you're parents of 80s children too, you're also built a little different. Like road trips for an 80s kid is different than a road trip for 2000 and what are we in, 21? Vastly different. Let me tell you my little story. My story of a road trip involved, this is what you get ready. You get your Walkman ready and extra AA batteries and a few cassette tapes that you can share with uh, your siblings because you're going to be going through those five songs on side A and five songs on 5B pretty quick. And you can only handle so much Stephen Curtis Chapman. You have to throw in a little Amy Grant or a little Mike W. Smith. Yeah, for those who are really into the things of Jesus. So you put those on top, but what you put on the bottom is you put like White Heart and Petra, the stuff that your parents didn't want you to listen to. But you know they love Jesus. They just had electric guitars. And uh, you found your seats in the back. Uh, I always sat behind the driver. I sat behind my dad. And uh, I had my Walkman, and I, all I needed was just a good window, just to stare out the window. And from there, it's like, I, I don't remember much else, except for dreaming as I stared out the window. It's amazing what some of those songs will lead you in. Like, at one point, you know, you see the telephone poles go by, and you think, man, I, I could probably be the fastest kid in the world. <laughs> you imagine yourself on the podium of Olympics somewhere. There's a lot of things you imagine. And you get into it about an hour, and every 80s kid found this. You found that every car that had a windshield, and all of them did, but wasn't a hatchback. Every car had a built-in bed if you were four foot and under. And so you climb on the back seat of, your, of, of, of the seat, and there had under the window, there was a bed built in. And you just, you just laid there. The speakers were underneath you. Uh, this is a Bonneville that I'm speaking of. Uh, and everything was fine until you know, the driver went too heavy on the brakes, and then you'd fall off. Be disrupted. Car didn't pull over. It kept going. Seatbelts. What are seatbelts? And I also asked my wife, do you ever remember, because she's 80 as well, do you ever remember snacks on road trips? I don't. I, like, no, not at the rate that we give snacks today. Like, I remember, like, a sleeve of Neckos that lasted all the way to the Oregon coast, and you had, to, you had to have them on the way back, and then you would barter with your siblings for colors of Skittles, it's not like you had this, like, Trader Joe's in your back seat, which we have today. We have driving movie theaters, and we have Trader Joe's, and we can't even still make it out of the neighborhood without a child saying, are we there yet? And I'm hungry. You can't be hungry. We just left the house. There's no way you can physically, physically be hungry. And obviously, you're smarter than that. You know we've only been in this car five minutes. No, we're not there. This is a long road trip. Well, why can't we fly like other people? <laughs> like, I don't know what you say to that. Your mom's cheap. I, like, I don't know. Like, we're, <laughs> we're going to drive, and you're going to dream of what you could be one day. 
if you shut up and just stay staring out that window. But I had to laugh about it a little bit because I think, man, just it's two different, two different generations. Uh, and when you think about it, I was thinking about this as I was reading through um, the passage in the Old Testament, particularly in Numbers, when thinking about the life and the story of the nation of Israel. And I thought, man, they were a lot like, they were less like the 80s child, and they're more like the road tripper today, where they barely make it out of their neighborhood, and they're already complaining to the driver. Like, are we there? Why have you, why'd we go this way? What are we going to eat? We had better stuff back home. Uh, we had a pantry full. Have you led us this way to just, are we lost? Are we going in circles? And and I want you to think about this today. We've been in this series uh, talking about culture and the empowering presence of God. And today I want to kind of look real quick at just Israel, their story, just in just a little snapshot of it. Uh, and I think what we got to be careful is sometimes when we read scripture, we push it too far away from our own personal story. Uh, we don't include it. We don't put ourselves in scripture. It's like, yeah, 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 those Israelites, can you imagine those people? Like they complained and murmured. Like, that's silly. Why would they do that? As if, like, none of us did it on the way into church this morning. Or, like, it was so, it's so, it's such a far thought. Like, oh, yeah, we used to do that, like, pre-Jesus. We used to complain and murmur. Uh, and I think that's just, come on. That's not, being, that's not being honest. It's not being factual. I think what we see in the life of Israel is we see uh, a, a heart of people uh, who aren't fully believing. Even as Pastor Ken transitioned, we have to, as believers, you're, you're called to believe. Uh, you're not called to fill first. You're not called to have every scenario working in your advantage, and then you believe. You're called to believe based on this reality that God is for you. And I want you to put this kind of in the crock pot today and just kind of let it simmer for a moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with as well this statement. And the statement is this, that God gives uh, you, he gives us the ability to, and, and the gifts to, to conquer, to overcome, and to, to persevere. God gives me, you can say it with me, God gives me the ability and the gifts to overcome, to conquer, to sub- subdue, to possess, to overcome. God gives us the ability, every single one of us, we have access. He gives us both access, permission, and the gifts and the empowerment to, to be overcomers, not to be victims of this story, victims of that story, victims of this circumstance. But God has given because of his good grace, because of his indwelling presence. He's given us the ability to be overcomers, both individually as Christ followers, but also collectively as a church, as a church community. Uh, we see this when you look at uh, the story of of Israel, particularly in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 10, verse 33 through 36. I'm going to read it, and it goes. It doesn't stop with chapters how we do it. It, it literally goes into the next chapter, verse 11. So I want you to hear it as one, one paragraph, one statement. It says, so they sent out from the mountain of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. Next verse, and the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, and whenever they sent out from camp. Verse 35, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it 
And when it is rested, speaking of the ark, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Goes into the next verse right away. Verse one of chapter 11. Goes right into this. After Moses' prayer, after the ark has gone out before them, it goes right into this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. That's called a divine break check. And you know what that is. There was nothing that dad was trying to miss in front. You were just getting too lippy, so he just stepped on the brakes a little bit. Either the seatbelt caught you or the back of his seat caught you. That's what we see happens throughout the story of Israel. God has to do these break checks in their life because they're talking in a way that's disrespectful of who he is. They're, they're murmuring. They're complaining. They literally just left the base of Mount Sinai, and they're heading not on this long, horrific journey, but they're heading on a journey as the presence of God is leading them to a place of promise, a place of rest that has been commissioned and established and set up for them specifically. We see in Exodus chapter 6 that there's the mission statement that essentially God gives for Israel. I want you to hear this. It says, say therefore. So uh, Yahweh tells Moses to speak this to the people. He says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I, the Lord, am bringing you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgments. I will take you to my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under, look at this, the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 8, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I'll give it to you for possession. I love this last sentence. It's almost like this stamp of, of Yahweh. I am the Lord. Like, I'm signing this promise. I'm saying that what I've said, not someone else hasn't said, just someone who's just a bystander, just, it, there's not a trend. It's not just some average individual. This is God who's speaking, you're going to be my people, and guess what? I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to take you to a place that is fully yours. You're going to enter into this land that I have promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a witness of my faithfulness and my integrity of my word. What we see happens to this point is we see that God has led them out of this this place of bondage. Just like as we celebrate, weeks ago, we celebrated, come on, Resurrection Sunday, Easter. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of Jesus bringing you out from under the stronghold and the strangulation that death brings because of sin. And he makes you alive, not by yourself, but he makes you alive in the person of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a rescue mission. This was a rescue mission. God had brought them out from that place. But what we see in the book of Numbers and the story of Israel is we see this human rebellion that contrasts or contrasts with what? The faithfulness of God. The persistent faithfulness of God, might I add. And if you don't thank God for anything today, thank God for his persistent faithfulness. Not because you know the story of the person sitting next to you, but because you know your own story. Like, God, thank you. Even in my uh, unfaithfulness, in my doubts, in my complaints, in my sin, that you remain faithful to fulfill your word. 
for for all people. Your word and scripture is not just uh, just literature of suggestion or just rhythms that are poetic. No, it's like that. It's it's covenant. Something that you're not going to bend from, move away from. And you're going to fulfill it. And this is the story. It's this this contrast between humanity's rebellion and God's persistent faithfulness. And that's why people say, well, the book of Numbers is it's a book of wandering. It is, but you know what also it is? It's a book of faithfulness. But it's not faithfulness based on individuals. It's a faithfulness based on, on God himself, his own character. And he's brought them out. He's brought them into a covenant relationship. Even though they've been relationally unfaithful, God establishes his covenant relationship with them. So those two check mark, those two boxes are checked. The next one is he's leading them into a place that he had promised to their fathers. And he's faithful to lead them uh, to a place. He gives everything needed for their success, for the journey. Uh, we see that he doesn't, and we look at the kingdom of heaven, it's not, you know, we use the, the kind of the terminology, shoot from the hip. He doesn't shoot from the hip. Like the kingdom of God is is detailed and it's thoughtful and there's a foreknowledge to God that we don't get to occupy, that he gets to see all things. He's aware of all things. And I love the fact that he prepares adequately. Uh, like their story, but also your story. Like God knows exactly what you're moving into in this next season. And he has everything needed, not for you just to be okay and barely make it, but to to be successful, to be victorious, regardless of what feelings or culture says around you, God's for you. And we see this in the first 10 chapters of Numbers is fascinating, especially for all those who love administrative work. I'm like, that's your, that's your gift. Like you are administrative through and through. You're going to love reading the first 10 chapters of Numbers because it's all about this beautiful checklist of travel. It's all about getting this group of people, a large group of people ready for this pilgrimage to go to a land that they've not been to before, but it's been promised to them. And we see that God cares because of all the preparation he puts into the travel before they even start out. So some people, well, God doesn't care. Well, if God didn't care, then he wouldn't spend all the time preparing a people to get from point A to where he's taken them. The same is true in our life. God cares for you. How do I know that? Because he spends an awful lot of time preparing Psalms 139, before you were thought to anyone, you were thought to God. He says he knew every detail, every day of your life and my life were written out before a single day came to pass. How precious, if we're talking about a God who cares, how precious are his thoughts towards you and towards me. He says, they're just not just a little bit. It says they outnumber the grains of sand on any given seashore. Like this is the process, this is the heart, the character of God towards Israel. And it's the heart of God towards us today that he cares deeply for you. He cares because he prepares or he prepares, which shows that he cares, whatever. That almost sounds like a nursery rhyme. Whatever it is, however that sticks to, to, to your brain and heart, understand that his preparation is sign of his care for you and for me. And we see that uh, even through God's preparation, even through God's caring, even through God's, I mean, he even does this. He tabernacles right in the midst of them. Like even the arrangement of their camp suggests and gives life to a bigger story that it wasn't about just getting the people from point A to point B. It was about 
in the journey enjoying the very presence of Yahweh. And he wasn't going to be on the fringe of the camp. When the camp was set up, Yahweh would place, and he would give instruction for his tabernacle to be right in the middle of these tribes. And every tribe, every family of Israel, they would be pointing towards the tabernacle which represents the presences with him. That was at the resting place. And then when they were traveling, what does it say? It says the ark went in front of them. So when you're moving, you always want the presence of God in front of you. When you're resting, you always want the presence of God in the very center of your life and of your world. What does it show? It shows that God is, he's, He's involved with every aspect of their life. But this is the response for every good thing God had done, every miracle that God had orchestrated. The response or the reaction to was indifference, complaint, murmuring, uh, questioning the very character and nature of God. They would do it as they would question Moses, which then would indirectly be a question on God's goodness, his nature and on uh, his, his integrity. And there's this cycle of sin that would continue to take place in the nation of Israel. And it was every time God did something great, they would quickly forget the greatness of God. Uh, and like spoiled toddlers, um, and we love spoiled toddlers, but God's not called us to be spoiled toddlers our whole life. They just, they just didn't grow up. Uh, they didn't have a mature, spiritually faith-founded heart. They were adolescents, and I think their actions and their complaint really showed the spiritual maturity or the spiritual immaturity uh, in their own hearts, in their own life. Their inability and their unwillingness to trust God for longer than a moment showed that they were, they were adolescent in their faith. Uh, and we see that they would complain. And as they would complain, this is what would take place. God would, he would break check them. He would, there would be a discipline. Uh, and then they would cry out all the more. And Moses would intercede on their behalf. And God would relent. He would withhold his punishment and his anger. And he would forgive. And they would forget the forgiveness. And they'd go back again into the complaint, into the murmuring, into living life their way, how they want it on their agenda. And the whole cycle continued. They complained about the leadership. The sons of Kor would complain about about uh, not having enough power, wanting more. So uh, God would turn up the heat on them. We see that even Moses' family would question some of his choices. And, uh, and we see that uh, there were those that uh, they, they wanted better food. They weren't, they weren't satisfied with the manna, the what is it. They wanted the food that they had when they were in Egypt. And there was just complaint after complaint after complaint to where finally in the 14th chapter of Numbers, we see that God says, how long will these people despise me? You, you don't want God asking that question about you. How long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. It's as if God is shocked by their, their unbelief. The 14th chapter, this is the, the, the breaking point, is when they give in to the evil report that comes back from the survey of the lands when 12 spies were sent out, 12 heads of households were sent out to Canaan to spy out what, what it was, uh, to confirm, yes, it's exactly what God's spoken, but uh, they're bigger, badder, and more fortified than us. They give in to an evil report, and they begin to wail and to weep like, like spoiled children. The, 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 the automobile, the Oldsmobile got a flat tire and you're losing your mind in the back seat because you think this is the end of you. 
It's, it's, it's as if that somehow in the, that the hearing of that report that God has lost control to them, which he never had. And I think when, when I read through the story, you have to think they just came out of Egypt. Uh, a lot of their influence, a lot of uh, what they picked up, even culturally, as they were in the wilderness, following the direction of Moses as God led them, they picked up a lot of cultural influence from from Egypt. Egypt would represent the opposite in this in this narrative, the opposite of the kingdom of God. Pharaoh would represent the 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 opposite of what a savior would be, the opposite of what the goodness and righteousness and holiness of Yahweh would be, and we find that they wanted to go back to that. This is the group of people that are in uh, this caravan with Moses as he's leading them. They're people that want to go back to that. And what we see is it's almost like they had more the heart of, like it wasn't Father Abraham, but it's more Father Pharaoh that had influenced their heart than anything else. They were resembling that, like spoiled, uh, selfish, self-centered people. Uh, They wanted the things of what they used to have, not where God was taking them to a land of promise, a land that was going to be brand new, and they would be their own nation, their own people pretty amazing, but what overwhelmed them was the, the wrong report. And I'm going to give us the next few moments here. Stick with me. I, I have seven things I want you to just write down and consider, not just for their story, but let's consider it for our story as well. Um, because if it is true, and it is true as you read through scripture, that God has given us the ability and he's given us the gifts to overcome and to possess and to subdue and take dominion over areas and things in our life. Uh, the question then is, why doesn't everyone do that? Why is that not everyone's story? And I think it has to do with how we respond to the word of God. There's an action that of faith that all of us are responsible for. And I think if we're not careful, we can allow certain factors in that will influence us more towards distrusting in, in unbelief rather than putting our faith and our trust, our hope and our loyalty in King Jesus. I think one of them is influence. Number one, I think influence is a big factor into leading people in one direction or the other. Here in chapter 11, we see that their influence says, now the rabble, which is mob or pack uh, that was among them, had a strong craving. Another translation for rabble is a collection of grumblers. So there was a collection of grumblers that was among them that had this way of influencing them, not in the ways of God, but influencing them in the opposite direction, getting them to complain. And it was contagious. And they would grumble in their groups, and then they'd go home to their houses and to their tents, and the grumbling would spread into the household to where the entire nation is infected by this spirit of grumbling. And it came from an outside influence. And I think what we have to be careful is we have to be careful that whatever you allow to be the closest thing to you, you better make sure that that relationship and that person and that source is pointing you in the way of Jesus and not in the opposite direction. Because it doesn't matter how long that you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how well-versed you are uh, in politics and culture and scripture. If you allow the wrong sources in, it will take those who are strong among us and make us weak in unbelief and unfaithfulness. Influence is is critical. Uh, I think the next one is they had this, this way of, I mean, it was shocking, shocking. They had a way of being forgetful. 
And this is where we have to be careful not to separate ourselves too far from their story in their life. But all of us, as we read through, you're like, wait a minute. Like, God literally made, like, the, the Red Sea. He made walls out of the water. And then the east wind came and dried up the dirt. And so they walked over on dry land. Not like hip waders. They, they walked over on dry land. And they were successful in it. And they forgot that. That's where we're like, yeah, we can't relate. But I just think it shows you the... the if we're not careful, what human nature, what it can do, how forgetful it really can be. It really can be that. We hear stories all of Kip, as Pastor Ken mentioned. She says, yes, the testimony is like, I have a clean bill of health, cancer-free. And I celebrate that with her, but I think if we're not careful, we get in our cars when we go home, and we forget the testimonies like that and others, and we think, oh, man, what about, what about me? And we start worrying about what we don't have or what we're facing, as though somehow God is accessible to some people, but not everybody. And that's not the story of Israel. What God is saying is like, no, no, no. I'm placing myself in the middle of all of you. And your whole life can be centered on me. And I can be your source. I can be your help. And I'm going to lead you somewhere. I think we have to be more, I think we have to remember better. And we have to be less forgetful. Uh, because that affects our response. They, they forgot the, the, the mission of God in Exodus chapter 6. They really did. They, they forgot that God says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. So they forgot who they were, and they forgot who God is. And because of that, uh, they allowed an opening in their mind and their heart to think God to be something other than he really is. He's a God who's out of control. He doesn't know where, where we're going. Um, and that's not the case. The next one's arrangements. So there's influence we have to be careful of. I think we have to be careful not to be people that are forgetting the goodness of God. I think that's why it's so important every day. Get up and start remembering. Let some of your first words be words of remembrance and gratitude and worship of what God has done. Arrangements, the next one, number three. I think when you get your arrangement off, uh, when you reorientate your life around something other than, than God, uh, you set yourself up for, for trouble. And what we see is, as is, is I mentioned, uh, the tabernacle is placed in the midst of them. But just because the tabernacle is in the midst of Israel doesn't mean the tabernacle or the presence of God, as that's what it represents, is in the hearts of every Israelite. It's just like just because we've come to church today doesn't automatically make us followers of Jesus. Is the presence of God here? Absolutely. Is God accessible to, does he hear our prayers? Does he know what we're going through? Does he know what uh, is involved in our life? Absolutely. Uh, but he's also God who's a gentleman. And uh, things aren't automatic just because you go to a certain place. No, there, it requires the ask. It requires the leaning in. It requires the looking and setting our attention on, on Jesus. Uh, I, love, I love what happens when you get the arrangement of life right. You get, you get everything else in life right. The problem is when we get out of arrangements, uh, it becomes dangerous. Psalms 46 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And this is, this is the reality. However, there was an unwillingness to allow Yahweh to be the center of their life. And because of that, there was a relational separation that took place. And that gap of relationship uh, made way for suspicion and for contempt and for complaint amongst the people of Israel. The same thing happens if we're not careful in our life today. Uh, number four, I believe, is a delusional mind. They had a delusional mind in this uh, that they begin to um, remember 
what it was like in Egypt, and their memory was, it, it wasn't full. It wasn't full memory. It was, it was spotty. Uh, it was only focused on a few things. Uh, we see that in Numbers 11, 5, it says, we remember, this is what they said, the fish that we ate in Egypt, it cost us nothing. Like, did the fish in Egypt really cost you nothing? It says they remember the cucumbers and the onions and the leeks, and they begin to list out. And I get it. I've, I've fasted a day before. And uh, I remember what I ate the, the day previous. You, you begin to think that way. But this is something other than, man, I just, we just miss it. What they're saying is like, they're saying is that they've completely forgot. They thought that what they were being fed was of no cost. And they forget, they remember what it felt like and what it tasted like, but they forget that it actually cost them their life, that they were dying, that they're under bondage. They, they think it was free and it wasn't free. What made them free was the work and the activity of God in sending a deliverer. It's just like us. If we're not careful, you can get to a season of life where you begin to remember how life used to be, maybe before Jesus. And you're going through a hardship and thinking, man, it felt like life was a bit easier before Jesus. Now, there might have been seasons that were easier, but I guarantee it was never fulfilled as it is right now. And what you'll do, you'll be spotty too if we allow a delusional mind to to take captive our thoughts. Because we'll only remember the feel-goods and we won't remember the costs and the damage and the death that was associated with us when we are apart and separated from from Jesus. Paul says we're to destroy every argument and, and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take, come on, take a captive, take control of that thing. But in them, it, it allowed them, it, it ran amok in their life uh, and they begin to define their current situation as a worse situation than they were under the bondage and under the oppression of Egypt. That's when you know you're being d- deluded and delusional in your mind. They're delusional. Uh, The fifth one is they love to wander. And Jeremiah chapter 14 says this is a people that they love to wander. And the the picture of that is they, they... they didn't have disciplined feet or their feet were unrestrained, meaning they would just kind of just wander off path. They would go their own route, their own way, and it, it was never the direction of where Yahweh was taking them. It's like they love to be undisciplined in their heart or they didn't have the character to have a disciplined heart. And because they didn't have the character to have and commit to a disciplined heart, it led them in the opposite direction of where God was taking them. See, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to say yes to Jesus first and foremost, but then you have to commit to have a disciplined heart, allowing him to teach and to train and mold. And it just doesn't happen like in the good, safe, healthy, um, low friction seasons of life. You have to commit to be disciplined when the friction is turned up, when the heat of the oven is turned up. But it's there that you develop and that you grow and your faith matures. And you go from being adolescent toddlers that are whining and griping and complaining to someone who you know how to hold your tongue. You, You can see that, okay, there though, we're on the windy part of this canyon. It's eventually gonna straighten out. And where we start, started, we're further along than that, and God is getting us to where we're supposed to go, and there's celebration that can happen along the way. This is what they lost, and that was, they loved to wonder. They, willful sin was number six. Uh, they, 
they desired, they, they, they desired to go back to Egypt. And you can read this as you read through uh, the, the, the story and the history of Israel. They, they desired to go back to Egypt. And essentially what they're saying, I got to be quick, this, what they're saying is like, we want out of this covenant relationship. Like we want to go back to what we had before we met you as our husband. So we essentially, we, we want a divorce from, from God. We want a different leader and we want to go back to the way we thought that things were as though that's going to be a better decision. That is a willful decision to turn their backs in their, their lives on a covenant, faithful, loving, loving God. They're walking not in the dimensions of, of this righteousness, of Abrahamic righteousness. They're going the opposite direction of that. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that same thing. We can willfully, maybe not with your words, but with our actions, decide that we're not going to follow Jesus. We're going to do it our way. And if you think about it, it's the, same, it's the same demonic narrative all through Scripture, from past to present. It's where the enemy comes into our thought life and into our world to try and look for those open doors. And these six things that I've mentioned are all open doors of, of the access points the enemy can get on trying to sway you Bend your allegiance and your trust and your faithfulness and your commitment from Jesus away to something else. And you know what? He didn't even care what it is. He didn't care what the object or the subject is as long as it's not God. As long as it's not Jesus, he, he's okay with. And I think this is what happens if we're not careful. Uh, and then the, the, the last thing I wrote down is uh, they were motivated by fear. They're motivated by fear. They gave in to reports uh, that was a report from 10 men, but they didn't give any time to listen to the two men of faith, Joshua and Jacob, who saw the same thing as the other 10. They said, yes, this is a land that is plentiful. It is, it is abundant in resources. It's a rich land. Uh, it, can, it can house, it, we can build on this. It can, it can take the entire nation and some. And yes, we do agree with the other report that the cities are fortified and the, the, the military powers are large and vast, but the advantage is on our side. I, I love when you go through scripture and you find, you find stories like this. Yes, they're bigger, badder, and larger than us, but they're no match to Yahweh. And if we are his people and he is our God, then we could cross over right now. Why? Because God has given us the ability, he's given us the gift to enter into this land, to have dominion and to subdue and to overcome and to conquer. They're at this crossroad like us. Like the permission is given. Now it's up to the individual whether they're going to trust God in that overcoming aspect, whatever, whatever it is in a, person's, in a person's life. But they choose not to do that. Fear, what it does, it has a funny way of creating false narratives and stories within your life. And what they did, they gave more into this idea that, of what could be possible about their lives being destroyed. They gave more energy and more strength to that than they did to the fact, the reality that Yahweh is in their midst. Like tabernacling among them, empowering them to be conquerors. But they were more fearful of man than they were fearful of God. And Jesus himself says, I do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body 
in hell. I think the problem is they were fearing man and they undervalued the very presence and power of Yahweh in their midst. If we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can look at culture, we can look at news, we can look at the situations around us, and we can give more energy and allow the doorways of fear to be open our life more to that than we actually fear the very presence of King Jesus. The, the, the one who makes waters walkways. The one who is able to feed multitudes with loaves and fish. The one who's able to take those who are blind from birth and allows them to see. The one who makes the crippled man and woman able to walk. The one, come on, who is able to take the, the, the woman with the issue of blood. He, he's able to heal her in a moment. And we give more concern and energy to other things around us. And the very fact that it, we serve a God who heals in all of Kip. And whatever your name is and whatever your need is, that's the God that we serve. Be careful not to allow fear to be an open doorway to what God wants to do. I think, this is what I really think, and I got I to gotta wrap this up. I really think that the major struggle in the story, and, and there's two stories here, there's first generation, second generation. We know that the promise of God always is fulfilled. He doesn't do it through generation one, he does it through generation two, where he allows them because of their faithfulness, and they weren't perfect, but they at least allowed God to be front and center of their life, and that's what gave them the access into this promised land, which is later then fully materialized by King David. We see one generation isn't able to enter to this land of promise because of, not personality, but because of their unwillingness to trust God and to place him at center. I think this story, uh, I think the problem is rooted in this, that this was a control issue. I think that this was a control of who's going to take center. Who's going to be in the very middle, controlling being the ultimate authority. I think this was a power problem, an authority problem. I think the problems of, of the individuals here were they wanted to lead and define and be the, the authority of their own lives. I think the same problem there is the same problem that we face today. I think we don't want Jesus to be center because if he's center, that means I can't be center. And that means I really have to trust that he has everything under control. I doodled on my iPad, if we can show that little graphic. Just kind of give you a picture. Put that graph up. There you go. Okay. I, I think this is what sometimes we look like and sometimes the, the children of Israel look like. I didn't mean those to be tents. I meant those to be, be topics, right? But what we do is we have our vocation that's pointed towards self, our community that's pointed towards self, finances points towards self, friends point towards self, marriage points towards self, politics, the church, education, our needs. It all points towards self. I mean, even God gets a smaller bubble than some of the other ones. It's kind of just, he's marginalized, even though, you know, a part of a, maybe a church community. I think if this is an all too reality for so many people. The problem with that is, uh, whatever you place at center that's not Jesus will eventually fall, break, and it'll, it'll collapse. 100% every single time. I mean, everything we have in life has a limit, and it can only take us so far. I think what 
God wanted the children of Israel to understand is that the only way they can be successful and the only way that they can overcome and persevere and go on to the next seasons of life, of conquering, of flourishing is God's covenant people, is if he was going to be allowed to be at center. And it's God who holds everything together. We do this though. We put our marriage right in the middle of that group. And we want kids to point to the marriage, finances point to the marriage, friends to point to the marriage, community to point to the marriage, politics. The problem is marriage is great. I love, I love strong, healthy marriages, but, but a marriage is, is not Yahweh. And what happens is it eventually, if it has to hold all that pressure of being like the, the nucleus, the very, the, the center of the spoke, it's going to start fraying and, 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 and breaking. But we also do with business. We wonder like, man, why, what, what is, why aren't things like just working well for me? We, we put business in the center. That becomes like our chief aim and our, our, our family and our kids and education and finances and community and Paul, uh, everything points towards that. But just like a marriage, business is good. But what happens is it can only handle so much pressure. And then we do it for like the individual. And now you're saying that all your life is held by you. Now, I love, I, the, the, I think God's invention, the human body, is fantastic. Like, it, the, the amount of pressure and the amount of weights and, uh, that it can, can handle is overwhelming. You know it. Like, I, had, I have a little girl, not so little anymore, but when she was little, I remember, like, a PBR bull rider. She took her little scoot car, and she rode it down our stairs, all the way down the stairs, hit the landing, slid in to the front door, hit that door, popped up, gave a grunt, kind of gave a point, and took her car, and she's going to go ride again. No injuries, no broken bones. I'm like, man, the body is fascinating. Years later, her brother convinces her to take a, a sled down the stairs. Same story. This time, she lays there a little longer. Pictures, her toes can wiggle. They did, pops back up. I'm thinking, like, what we can take is pretty amazing. Like, divers going, like, what, 100 atmospheres below? Like, and, and the pressure that they can take on. Like, it's, like it's, it's pretty remarkable, but no matter how remarkable the human body is and what it can endure, even the strongest man and woman in the world, you put enough weight on them, they eventually, it'll crush them. And I think what we do is... Uh, the reason why many in our culture live crushed lives is because instead of allowing Jesus to hold center, because he's the only one that can, because he's the only one that can manage all of the pressure and the weight of marriage and of family and of education, your vocation and your vacation and your career and your kids, you name it, your talents, everything. All those, the spokes have to turn to where God is the person in the very middle. And it says this, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the, the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I think this is what he was looking for in the nation of Israel. It's what he's looking for in our lives today, casting all your anxieties on him. Because sometimes travel, and we've heard from Pastor Chris, camping isn't the easiest. So there are some serious needs there. But he says, take those needs, those anxieties, instead of running off to where you think you can find something that's going to fulfill, set those on me. Set your attention 
on me. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Psalms 55 says, cast all your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast all your care on the Lord and he will sustain you. It's like my pocket. It's like this is where God desires us to be, right? Front, front and center. And I think what God is looking for, he's, he's looking for us to put, put our cares there. Maybe not our phone. Maybe our coat. Right? Just bear with me. Michael Warner does this so much better, these props. Props are tricky. All right. Gun show. Here we go. That's what a lot of our lives look like. Casting all my cares on him for he cares for me. Right there. Uh, Maybe watch, right? Put the watch there. The phone can't go there. <laughs> it's too controlling, right? And that's, I think, oftentimes what, what our life looks like. And this is like, yeah, we're, I'm trying to put like Jesus at center. He's right here. He's carrying my jacket and my watch. Tells me how many steps I've taken. So he, he knows where I'm going. That's not the picture. The picture is, the picture is, it's, it's phone. It's not, okay. It's Sunday. It's 11 o'clock service. We got a late start. Kids were freaking out. This is it. This is my worship experience. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. I get it. I get it. Yeah. That's not the picture either. The picture is you, they're concerned about this chair. I'm not. Here we go. Right here. Put all your cares on him for cares for you means you put your full weight on the center on Jesus. You're stepping on Jesus? He's a cheer. I, I know. I, the humility of Jesus to allow us to do this. That he carries my marriage. He carries any issues, any pain, any fears that I have, and I have some. Any anxieties at my face, and I have a few. Any issues in my physical body, I have a couple. Any problems in my family, yeah, there's some. Any dreams not yet fulfilled? Yeah, there's a couple. Any prayers not yet answered? Yeah, they're, they're there. And this is, this is the picture. This is, what, this is what God was after for the children of Israel. This is what God's after for you in my life is let him be center. Let him carry all your weight. Business, marriage, finances. And, come on, and your vacation. You'll have a better vacation if you don't write God off on it. That everything in your life points inward to King, to King Jesus. Father, thank you today that you, uh, you cast, you, you're the God who, you're the God who makes a way. You're the God who allows us access. You're the God who gives us the ability and you give us the grace and you give us the gifts to, to be overcomers, to, to be conquerors, to, to be people that 
aren't uh, victims of the abuse and the attacks that we know the enemy wills and that he delves out. But Lord, thank you. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you that you've given us, man, the very presence of yourself. You abide with us. You're housed here. You, you tabernacle among us. And what you're asking from us is the ability and making the decision to trust you at your word and to be faithful in season and out of season, high tide, low time, fire, storm, wind, rain, you name it, no matter what. Lord, we as a church choose, individual, we choose to make a commitment, Lord, to follow you, Lord, and to cling, man, to rest and to put all of our weight upon your word in the very presence of who you are. God, thank you today. Lord, even Pastor Ken said it. There's some people that showed up at church expecting one thing and you probably got something else. So I'm asking for... For all of us, if we've not allowed you to be center of our life, Lord, help us make an, a rearrangement, reorientate our life today so that everything that involves our story is pointing to King Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.